From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. We are starting the show, though, talking about an announcement that was made earlier today and some big changes potentially coming to some schools in B.C. The B.C. government is moving to restrict the use of cell phones in schools. This is all part of measures that the premier says will help protect young people from online threats. And uh, he also made a little bit of a joke about this when making the announcement this morning. As a side note... I mentioned to Ezra this morning that I would be announcing this, and he said, oh man, Dad, you're going to be the number one enemy at my school. (laughs) Yeah, not everybody is going to be on board. The announcement, though, also talks about keeping kids safe from online predators, saying that new services are also going to start to help people stop or prevent the distribution of explicit images of them without their consent, and to pursue the damages from the predators. Coming up a bit later on in the show, we're going to check in with BC Attorney General Nikki Sharma. But right now, we're joined by Merlin Horton, Canadian online safety expert, also the CEO of Safe Online Education Associates. Merlin, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Joe. What are your thoughts? First, I want to talk about this idea of banning from bell to bell in schools, saying that there could potentially be a ban on kids having access to or using cell phones. What are your thoughts on that? Um, well, I think, like the Premier alluded to, there's going to be some kids that are going to be angry. Um, there's also going to be some kids who are relieved. I think that having cell phones has put tremendous pressure on kids to be online, to perform, to be on all the time. And I think it's, this is a, a really great step forward to kind of reducing uh, the effects of excessive screen time at as well, I, I, you know, I'd like to remind us all that Steve Jobs was a low-tech parent. When they asked him, uh, New York Magazine asked him, you know, how do you, what do your kids think of the iPad in 2003? He said, I don't know. We're not giving them one. This, lots of people who have designed and understand this technology didn't inflict it on their kids, but certainly at such early ages as we do. And because you're right, and and with so many kids having cell phones and at pretty young ages, I know there have been examples as well of teachers who maybe have tried to ban them in the past and kind of given up and then instead will incorporate them into learning and incorporate them into the school day. But does this also kind of make it a more even playing field? Of course. Um, There's lots of pressure, you know, the peer pressure and the family pressure to keep up with the latest device or the latest game console is tremendous. There was an interesting group down in the States called Wait Until Eighth, uh, eighth Grade, they referred to. So entire cohorts of parents would agree not to give their kids devices until grade eight. And so that removed that peer pressure. It gave the kids room to not be so oriented towards their online personas or interactions. And then in grade eight, you know, they're old enough for those social medias, most of which require them to be 14 years old. And they can start to make some decisions then because we do have to give them devices. There's, there's no doubt about that. We do have to teach them how to use them ethically um, with good values and for pro-social and positive purposes in their lives. There's no doubt about that. 
But right now, kids don't have any breathing room. Right. And so in bringing this in, is there, do you think there could potentially though be pushback in that, has it become a way that, that parents expect that their kids will have this phone and it's a way to even track where they are to make sure that you're always able to contact them? There's flip phones. Mm. Right? Yeah, no, that's, that's a good point. Why does it have to be an iPhone with more memory and more processing power than NASA had to land men on the moon in 1969? Why are we giving our children this high-powered device, unsupervised, as an entitlement when they don't have the the, uh, uh, cognitive development to use it? They can't assess risk. They can't project into the future. It's hard for them to empathize with others until they get, you know, to 18, 20 years old. So we're really giving children tools that are beyond their developmental capacity to manage. So if we make space for them in classrooms, we can start giving them some breaks from that screen time, from the social pressure coming from that device. And maybe start to role model ways to unplug for certain periods of time and and promote presence with one another. There's a school down in Massachusetts that did this last year, and the things they found were that, you know, there was more talking. There was more more engagement in the school clubs. There was uh, less bullying in the school. So let's give our, cha- our kids a chance to develop the social-emotional skills they need. How do we resolve conflict? Who do I want to hang out with? Uh, who do I want to, you know, what do I want my relationships to look like? Let's give them a chance to do that in physical spaces without the overstimulating opportunity to go on TikTok, which I know all about because I'm just as addicted as everybody else, but um, to give them space. To, to build some of those skills, because we are seeing deficits in our young people um, after, you know, HTML's been out, you know, the web's been widely adopted by young people since year 2000, I think it's safe to say. We have broadband saturation in 2005. So young people, this generation of young people, it's like the air that they breathe. And we need to, to model some alternatives. It was kind of two different parts of this announcement and part of it being a lot of what you're talking about and that it can have an impact on the mental health of children, their physical safety, if they're seeing things, uh, body image distortion, their cyberbullying. But the government also says it's going to be going after what it calls the bad actors. And that's the companies that allow children to be victim, to fall victim against predators online to to fall victim to that. What are your thoughts? Is that something that you think could potentially make a difference? I think we'd have a long way to go, but yes. Um, companies are rolling out apps and products for young people um, with terms of use agreements attached to them, which is where they all agree to everything, right? They're written in university-level language. They're an eight-point font. Young people have no opportunity to even understand the consequences of using that app or game. And so none of the, none of the literature, none of the marketing actually acknowledges the age that it's going to. 
So, yes, the social media companies have a responsibility. Uh, maybe the, uh, the Internet service providers could take an active part in providing education about these very, very powerful tools that they're deploying. Look, I, I think if we'd have known what was coming, you know, if we'd have known that giving kids access to the web would have promoted suicidal ideation or we'd have known that giving game consoles would lead to problems, we'd have done it all differently. But it, we need to adjust now. We need to dial back some of the ways that we're deploying devices and technology to students and young people and even ch- babies and children. We need to really look at it now, not only because it's so pervasive and this generation has grown up with it, but because artificial intelligence, AI, is on the horizon, and that's going to make it even more complicated. I think now is really the time to seriously consider how we're deploying devices, how kids are using. Dial it back to a flip phone if you can. Hmm. Because, and then that kind of goes to, I was curious, do you think people, parents especially, are they aware of just how vulnerable a a child, a young person can be? And not only a cell phone, say a tablet or a a laptop, but by being at these, by being on these devices. I absolutely not. I've, I do, I've been doing presentations and online safety presentations for parents for over 23 years. And sometimes I have to be careful about what I tell them because they'll cry. I talk about the accessibility of online pornography, about really deep, dark places that young people have the adeptness and have the capacity to find, you know. I've heard of uh, kids on the spectrum and, you know, in 10 years old being able to find their way to the deep web. Yes, parents are unaware and kind of afraid even to look sometimes. Well, Merlin, we'll leave it there for today, but thank you so much for joining the show and for talking more about this announcement. Appreciate your time. Thank you for having me, Jill, and have a great day. Thanks for being with us on this Friday afternoon. Well, some very sad news. Health officials in this province have confirmed a fourth child has died. And this was after complications related to influenza. The information was released as part of an update to the weekly respiratory illness update. The BC Centre for Disease Control said the death involved a child under the age of 10. And it was reported in between January 14th and the 20th. So what What does this mean as far as influenza-related deaths and the best way to protect people of all ages from those deaths? Joining me now to talk more about this, and we are also going to take calls coming up, is Jason Tetro, author, speaker, scientist who specializes in emerging pathogens. Jason, great to have you back on the show. Oh, it's good to be back. Uh, this is something I, I know, even having talked to, to friends with kids and uh, the importance of, of flu shots, maybe even people that didn't get flu shots before and mm-hmm. really trying to protect kids. Why is it? And again, this is a, a, a death due to linked, they say, to complications yeah. related to influenza. Why are kids a vulnerable age group when it comes to this virus? Yeah. Well, well first off, 
what we've seen in the data that's been coming in about the flu itself is that we're looking at the, for the most part, 90% of the cases that we're seeing in flu are the same flu that we had back in 2009 during that pandemic, okay? Now, if you remember that pandemic, that flu was very, very hard on pretty much everybody, but it was very difficult for children. And what flu does is it gets into the immune system and it essentially drains it. And as it's draining it, it will allow for other pathogens like bacteria to get in. This is what we talk about associated with as opposed to just simply the flu itself. And then that leads to a pneumonia that can unfortunately take a life. And while we don't know if that was the case with these four deaths, what we do know is that if it is this pandemic influenza that we saw many years ago, um, it, it's going to be devastating on the child. Thankfully, we do have a vaccine that we've had for many, many years, so there is a way to protect oneself. And so so it's not the flu, and, and not that that's reassuring at all to parents, but it's not mm-hmm. the flu that is the, the, the virus. It's not the flu that is the, the cause of death. It is what the flu does and what the flu allows yeah. as far as other, other complications. Absolutely. And we actually learned this from the flu pandemic. that um, When you die as a result of the flu, um, you end up having a problem in the lungs where essentially you're just unable to breathe and it starts to create uh, liquid that's happening inside of your lungs. It's, it's a very, very bad process that occurs. However, if there is some kind of flu that's ongoing in the body, supportive therapy uh, where essentially you're in the hospital and you're giving the IV fluids and you're helping and maybe even doing a little bit of um, um, respiratory help can actually essentially get person past that. But if you end up having that secondary pneumonia, it's much harder to get rid of. And if it happens to be antibiotic resistant, then there's very little you can do. And is it when you mentioned that the the different strains and if this is the particular strain that yeah. we were dealing with that, that pandemic uh, many years ago, because I remember mm-hmm. growing up and that was pre flu shot. But the, the reasoning or the, the thought process was you would likely get a flu at some point when you were a younger yeah. person and that would be what protected you or could potentially protect you when you got older. Yeah, absolutely. And what happened is that Prior to the the pandemic in 2009, we were getting this regular seasonal flu. Now, you probably would still end up getting flu-like symptoms from this particular virus because it does mutate all the time. That's why we need the annual vaccine. However, if you did get it as a child, there was less of a likelihood that you would have problems as you were getting older. And that's one of the reasons why we would always say, you know, it's okay for your kids to get sick when they're at daycare or in um, elementary school because that's going to help to build that immune system. But then with the 2009, what ended up happening was it had different elements in it from flus that infect animals as opposed to humans. And as a result of that, it was brand new. And unless you've seen that particular virus over the course of the last uh I guess, 15 years now, then you would not have the ability to fight it 
as if you had seen something earlier in your life. So it becomes a brand new ball game in that sense. And when we talk about these these secondary infections and what can happen yeah. after a flu infection, um, and again, not to, that this this makes makes more sense or or makes it okay. But are we talking about people that generally also have underlying conditions that they're more vulnerable? Um, I mean, if you're young, you're going to be vulnerable because you don't have a proper immune system. Um, however, you know, and that's the same thing with the elderly, their, their immune system is sort of on the other side of the curve of life. And so that's why we normally see that, uh, very young children and very old adults, uh, tend to have more serious complications and more serious symptoms. That, however, does not mean that everybody else is immune. If you have any kind of compromised immune system, and it may not necessarily be something you're aware of, it could be as a result of just simply lifestyle behavior, comorbidities like obesity, diabetes. Uh, I mean, all of these things could potentially lead to lower levels of immunity, then you're more at risk of having these secondary infections. Uh, And for the record, (laughs) I too, back in 1996, got one of those secondary pneumonias. I was 25. Hmm. Well, and, and I was going to ask you because, again, sadly, the report from the BC Centre for Disease Control said that this is the the uh, involving a child under the age of 10. Uh, does it change yeah. then, like, like you're saying, as people are developing their immune system, is it different under the age of 10 versus, say, a teenager or a young adult? Yeah, we tend to say under the age of 12. And you've no, you probably noticed that when we were um, having uh, vaccines being approved, it was always, you know, 12 and older. And for those who are 12 and younger or 11 and younger, that's sort of where we start making that that switch over with respect to uh, immunity. The, the, the reality, though, is that you know, usually you have a good base of an immune system by the time you're two years old. You have a good functioning immune system by the time you're about seven to eight years old. And then you have a really robust system, as we like to call it, by the time you're 12. So if you're at the age of 10 years old, you're still developing, which means you're going to be at still a higher risk. Just you're not going to be as it's not going to be as big of a risk as, uh, say, a four-year-old, put it that way. Right. Do you think that changed, though, with the most recent pandemic in that uh, people in those age groups were so protected for a time? They weren't in schools with other kids. Mm-hmm. They weren't being exposed to all of those things that help build your immune system. Yeah, no. <laughs> and the reason I say that is because... Um, Unless there is a child who does happen to be three years of age or younger, then they will have been exposed um, even at, uh, you know, six months or something along those lines. Usually around six months is where we start to see those exposures that lead to immune systems developing. So I don't think it's, it's really the case. What I think is really happening is that because this particular influenza H1N1 PDM is so deleterious on the system, if you haven't seen it or you haven't been vaccinated before, then you are a much greater risk of having that drained immune system allowing for those secondary pneumonias to come in. My guest is Jason Tetro, author, speaker. He's also a scientist who specializes in emerging pathogens. And Jason has agreed to stay with us and answer some of your questions. If you have questions, we've been talking about the flu, this year's flu season, and the sad report that BC has had another death of a child under the age of 10 linked to an influenza infection. Phone lines are open if you have a question for Jason. Star 989. 
1-800-289-9898 and 604-280-9898. Well, let's see. We do have a question on the line. And Jasper in New Westminster, good afternoon. What's your question? Uh, hi, Joe. Hi, Jason. Uh, when I was a kid, hi. we didn't have um, flu shots being recommended to us. Is that being mm-hmm. done now? Are doctors and pediatricians offering that to parents for their kids? Yeah. Um, so back in 2006, we had a change in policy where the vaccine for the flu was recommended for everybody every year. And essentially, we've been working under that premise for the last number, well, essentially since 2006. When 2009 came around, believe it or not, people were begging to get a vaccine because of the pandemic. Uh, and then after that, we sort of saw a little bit of a tail off. And as and sort of right now, we're looking at about 20 to 30% of people who are going to get the flu voluntarily. Uh, whereas, you know, when, when it first started, we were probably around 60 to 70%. So while there is a program, you may not even know that it exists. All right, Jasper, thank you for that call. Again, star 9898 and 604-280-9898 if you have a question for Jason Tetro. Uh, Jason, I'm curious too about when you, when you talk about that and kind of the uptake in people and getting flu shots. And mm-hmm. certainly there is a camp, but there are people that get flu shots every year. There are people that don't get flu shots. Is it something that once, if you start doing it, do you have to continue doing it every year? Well, I mean, you kind of have to do it every year anyways, because we are always seeing some kind of a change in the flu that's circulating. Um, Now, this year, we were a little bit more, um, I wouldn't use the word fortunate, but because the majority of cases happened to be the H1N1 pandemic, if you got the vaccine anywhere from 2010 to today, you probably had more protection than, you know, if it had been something that was a brand new But where we really start seeing the vaccine coming into play as a very good thing is when you're looking at another version of this virus called H3N2, because this one has a huge toll on people and it can last for a very, very long time, especially in the elderly, and cause all sorts of secondary complications. And it changes on a very regular basis. So even though this year's circulating strain might be the old pandemic one, you still want to get the vaccine because that H3N2 might show up around March. Hmm. And is that part one of the reason too? I often hear people say, well, it's only 40% effective or it's, it's impossible. There have been times uh, yeah. when it's, it's, it's not targeting the, the strain that we're actually seeing. Mm-hmm. No, oh, yeah. Uh, and, and that's one of the problems, right? Is that because it takes nine months for us to be able to get the vaccine into high enough production, you have to guess guesstimate or educated guess or evidence-based guess, whatever you want to call it, about a year ahead. And so the World Health Organization usually releases what strains or lineages or isolates are going to be used for the next year's vaccine. Now, thankfully, we tend to look to the Southern Hemisphere to give us some perspective as to what we're going to do for the Northern. But we've had numerous years since 2006 where we didn't get it very right at all. Thankfully, this year we got it right. So it's a really good year to get the vaccine because it is going to protect you. Do you find that there are kind of, when we talk about the vaccine and the COVID vaccine, of course, we've also been talking a lot about mm-hmm. that. Is it is it kind of vaccine overload and can that kind of have people shying away? Oh, yeah. 
and and this is one of the things that I've heard uh, a lot of times is that, you know, people at one point were thinking that they were going to have to get a COVID booster every three months because that was sort of what the messaging sounded like from public health officials, which is not really the case at all. Um, it was more like it was going to be sort of a two twice a year. And now we're beginning to realize that the virus is sort of sorting itself out. So we may need maybe one a year. Uh, you know, the one that we just saw come out, the XBB, that seems to be covering pretty much everybody these days. Uh, and we might actually get to a point where we only need the one shot and, and we may even have a universal coming up. But that fatigue that everyone's hearing about. So it's not fatigue about actually getting a shot in your arm. It's the fatigue about hearing about it that a lot of people have been having trouble with. And I just want people to understand we're going to get to a point where you're not going to have this overload of information about all the vaccines and all the vaccines. But even if you continue to hear about it, please still get the once a year shot for the flu because it's really good. <laughs> all right. Well, Jason, we're almost out of time, so we will leave it there for today. But appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. It was such a pleasure. Take care. We are talking now about an agreement, Apple agreeing to pay up to $14.4 million Canadian, and this all has to do with a class action lawsuit in this country. Andy Barrar joins us now, tech and digital lifestyle expert at handyandymedia.com. Andy, great to check in with you today. Hi, Jill. This is uh, seems well. I guess it, in Apple standards, it's not a lot of money. It is a lot of money uh, to uh, to most everybody else. But what is this class action lawsuit all about? Uh, well, we're going to have to go right back to about 2016 and 2017 because back then, if you owned an iPhone before December of 2017 you'll now be eligible for a payout because of this class action lawsuit. And essentially what it was is that there's allegations of what they call performance mitigation features. Essentially, when the new iOS update came out around that time and you updated your phone, what you suddenly noticed, just like overnight, Jill, was that the battery was dying faster. It was All the apps were moving slower. It just felt a little bit older. And that's what the allegation is all about, that in that update... Apple purposely made older phones start to perform even old, like worse in worse condition to basically uh, and essentially uh, prompt people to upgrade to the newer iPhone. So they did this on purpose in this iOS update, and that's what this class action lawsuit is all about. Hmm. And so was it specific iPhone models? Yes. Back then, it was the iPhone 6. So pretty much all of the 6, so the 6, the 6 Plus, the 6S, the 6S Plus, and also the iPhone 7 and 7 Plus. So this all happened around anything that if you downloaded that iOS update before December 21st of 2017, you'll then be eligible for uh, this class action lawsuit, which, as you mentioned, is only it's going to be somewhere between 11 and 14 million dollars. So it's chump change on Apple's part. But and here's the big but, Jill, as part of this settlement, Apple is uh, is having no admission of liability, wrongdoing or fault. So <laughs> I, I find this funny. They're, they're basically saying we have we're, we're going to say that we're not liable. We're not at fault but we are going to pay you out for this uh, class action lawsuit. <laughs> we'll throw some money at you uh, anyway. It doesn't matter. Uh, but so did they 
so have they admitted though that they did this? Because I will, I will fully admit when I saw this story and when I've been following along with it, I just always thought Apple did this and that, that it was known that this is how they kind of force you to upgrade your phone. Well, here's the thing about the iOS upgrades. When you upgrade your phone, and Apple, you have to remember, they, they create the hardware and the software. So they can actually get people to upgrade the iOS pretty quickly once it's released. But when you make that upgrade, you can't go back to the old uh, iOS upgrade if you change your mind. There is no undo button about this. And Jill, I remember this time vividly around that time because we called it battery gate mm. because it was overnight. People were complaining like, what happened to my phone? It just dies. Like I can't go through a full day anymore using my phone. And, and it was subtle, but it was that little prompt of, oh, maybe I should uh, upgrade to a new phone. But they did it on purpose. But now, as part of this uh, settlement, they're not saying they did anything wrong, but they're still paying it out uh, as a result to try to essentially make this go away. But I think they learned their lesson that you they can't really do that. So you don't see that as much. But what you'll notice is that when you do do the upgrade, the iOS upgrade on older devices, they tend to perform a little bit slower. But the new ones have no issues in terms of its performance. Interesting. I, I remember having, it was probably the six, but it was that same thing. Suddenly, if I didn't have three batteries with me to plug in, it wouldn't last. If I was working, it wouldn't last past noon. But it was actually part of a battery recall and they brought them all back and replaced the batteries. So I'm, I'm assuming that was different. But, but to even people listening to this will probably remember like you do. It was a big deal when you did that upgrade. You could really notice the difference. Yes. And the reason why it was a big deal is that it happened overnight. Like instantly people realized the only thing I did was upgrade this to this new iOS. And then suddenly, you know, my phone is not working as well. And Apple for a long time, you know, people were complaining that we even gave it that name, Battery Gate. Like what is going on right now with all of these phones uh, after that iOS upgrade? Um, but you have to understand phones do degrade over time. You know, it, the average person probably knows after about two years that it doesn't hold the charge as it used to. It's because they only have a certain amount of, of uh, charge cycles in a phone. But for that to happen overnight so suddenly is what piqued interest for a lot of people that something was funny was going on uh, behind Apple. And, uh, and this lawsuit basically shows that if you do qualify, you're going to be able to get a payout from Apple. The only hard part about this, Jill, I looked through the, the finer details, is you're going to have to have the serial number for that phone during that time that you had it to prove and to qualify as part of this class action lawsuit. Hmm. So how many people do you think are going to still have that? That's the problem. And that is the problem here is that I don't think a lot of people have it. Maybe if you purchased it online, you might have it in your email. But I rarely think a lot of people mm. keep phones from like five, six years ago. So that'll probably be the biggest hindrance because there's a lot of people that would technically qualify. But you're going to need to get that serial number if you want to fully uh, fill out that claim form to qualify for this settlement. Now, so if you do qualify, is it uh, the amount of money, is it depending on how many people join and the money will be divvied up between the people who join or have they already decided of the 11 to 14 million how much money they're going to give each person? I think the pool for the settlement is around to max around 14 million. So Apple has agreed anywhere between 11 and 14 million. And I think it's going to depend on how many people actually go through with this class action lawsuit. Back in January 10th was the deadline. If you didn't want to be part of this, if you if you wanted to sue Apple by yourself, uh, you had to f submit a form to opt out of this class action lawsuit. But pretty much most people 
now will qualify if you had a phone back then. But again, as I said, the, the biggest hindrance is going to find that serial number. And then you have to fill out this form and basically deca declare under oath that you downloaded that iOS update and that you noticed uh, performance issues as a result of that. Hmm, which I'm guessing anybody who did, you probably did notice that because Andy, you would know too, when the updates come, they kind of put the, this giant fear into you that for securities, yes. uh, for security and but do this, you need to do this immediately or your phone is at risk of, of being hacked and you're going to lose everything. Yes. And Apple does a great job in pushing people to, to do that upgrade uh, almost like within a week of getting it. You keep getting that push notification that you need to upgrade, you need to upgrade. So they they do this. I've noticed this many times, Jill, with even with my mom. I remember I bought her an iPad and she uses it occasionally and she had trouble downloading this app. So I tried to download it. It says, you need the new iOS upgrade. So I said, okay, I'll upgrade the iOS. And then it said, well, you don't qualify for the upgrade because your, your iPad's too old. Mm. So you have to buy a new iPad if you want to use this app. And that's when I realized, wow, that's Apple. They got you, you know. <laughs> but, but you know, you, the, that's the problem is they just don't make tech to last a long time. Like after about two years, they want you to upgrade. And I just wish a company like Apple would just make it like a sustainable phone. Like here's a light version of the, the iPhone and it has a re removable battery or you can just upgrade the camera. I wish we had something like that. But unfortunately, they keep wanting us to upgrade to newer, newer phones because that's how they make their, their money. And Apple is mostly an iPhone company. All roads lead to the mm -hmm. iPhone, all the other products. So it's a really important uh, revenue maker for that. How do people learn about the claim or the, the class action lawsuit? And uh, is there somewhere they can go to figure out if they could be part of it? Yes, there is a website called smartphoneperformancesettlement.ca. That gives you all the information about this class action lawsuit, and you can see what exactly that you need to qualify for it. And again, it's called smartphoneperformancesettlement.ca. All right, Andy, good advice or good knowledge that people should have, because I think a lot of people listening probably remember having those phones and having that happen with the iOS update. We'll leave it there. Andy, thank you so much. Thanks, Jill. Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.